I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Jesus is gone. Throughout the season of Lent and Easter, liturgical time has slowed to as close to real time as it ever gets. Christ was tempted in the desert for 40 days. The season of Lent is 40 days long. Holy Week takes us day for day through the last week of Christ's life before his passion. And now in Easter, we have been walking with Christ for another 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension which was on Thursday. Maybe you were here at All Souls, celebrating Christ's triumphant exaltation to his glorious seat at God's right hand in heaven. But now, three days on, the liturgy acknowledges a letdown. We pray in our collect this morning, do not leave us comfortless. As we are reminded that Jesus is not here anymore, we feel the prick of longing and sadness, maybe also anxiety, that his followers must have felt when that realization set in for the first time. Those first followers of Christ who watched him go stand at the beginning of an age that continues to this day. This is our time. Throughout the 1920s, there was an academic journal that Karl Barth, Rudolf Bultmann, and others of the so-called dialectical theologians published much of their work in. It was called Zwischen den Zeiten, which is German for between the times. I've always loved that title. It captures so succinctly our position in salvation history. Ours is the time between the times of Christ's parousia, his coming or presence among us. And so perhaps the defining hallmark of this time between the times is Christ's very real absence. And yet, we believe that our prayer do not leave us comfortless, does not fall upon deaf ears. Jesus is gone, yes, but God is still present. As if to reassure us of this, our reading from Acts gives us a sign. Let's hear verses 10 and 11 again. As they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? A cloud flanked by two angels. Where have we seen that before? Any first century Jew would recognize it easily, and I dare say many of us do too. This, I think, is an allusion to the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, God tells Moses, you shall make a cover of pure gold. You shall make two cherubim of gold at the two ends of the cover. You shall put the cover on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the covenant that I am giving you. There I will meet with you, and from above the cover, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the covenant, I will tell you all that I am commanding you. As we read through the rest of the Pentateuch, we find that the presence of God is often indicated by a cloud resting above the ark, filling the space between the two angels on its cover. So what are we to make of this allusion to the ark here in Acts as Christ is ascending to heaven? For one thing, I think it reminds us of who God is. 
Unlike their neighbors in the ancient Near East, the Israelites were strictly forbidden from, present, from representing God as a physical image of stone or wood or precious metals. Precisely where in a pagan temple the image of the deity would be represented, we find in the Hebrew tabernacle and later the temple, this ark. A seat or footstool with worshiping angels on either end, but absolutely nothing where the idol should be. It is essentially a frame for empty space. And the message it communicates is this. God cannot be possessed, captured, or defined like something made by human hands. God cannot be located in any one thing because all things have their being in God, who is in and beyond all things. So the best way to represent the presence of God is to highlight the absence of anything at all. And even when God wants to give us a sign of his presence, he does it with this cloud, with something that by its very nature conceals. It is as if in this sign of God's presence, God is saying, I will make myself present to you through precisely that which conceals or obscures my presence. So as Jesus returns to the Father in heaven, God gives those who remain a sign to remind us of who God is and how God is present. We had just come to grips with the fact that God was present to us in and as this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and now he is gone. But we have not been left comfortless. As Jesus is ascending, God tips his hand a bit with this ark illusion to remind us that he is still the God who has always been present to us, precisely in his apparent absence. But there's more this time. Before he left, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power. So this new era that has dawned with Christ's ascension is not simply a return to the way things were prior to his coming. This new time between the times is also marked by a new encounter with God's presence, the Holy Spirit. Now the space between the cherubim above the ark has moved into the hearts of God's people. As St. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I won't steal any more thunder from next week's sermon, as that's when we'll be celebrating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But suffice to say for now that our reading from Acts gives us two key guideposts for navigating the time between the times. The first is that God remains with us as the one who is precisely and especially present in his apparent absence. And the second is that God is now also present within each one of us by his Holy Spirit, empowering us for life in this present age. I think these two guideposts equip us to take up our last installment of this sermon series we've been exploring through Eastertide in the first epistle of St. Peter. Father James teed us up nicely last week in his reflections on suffering. He noted that suffering is typically seen as an emissary or ambassador of death. It is a sign that we are on the road to our undoing. But Christ's resurrection flips that on its head. Christ has defeated death, so the road to death has been disrupted. Suffering can now become a sign of union with Christ, and therefore a path to resurrection and life. 
This is one of the ways that the God who is present in his apparent absence is at work. For where is God when we are suffering? Aren't suffering and the presence of God in a kind of inverse relationship with one another? Do we not find God to be most absent when we are in the depths of our most profound suffering? But St. Peter tells us this is precisely how we can be sure that God is with us. He says in verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. You, in your suffering, have become the ark, the resting place of the presence of God. And this is not cold comfort, for as we said, the Holy Spirit comes with power. You do not bear this suffering alone, and you are not left with only your own resources to bear it. Neither does your suffering lead to your undoing. The God who has taken up residence in you has not now abandoned you in this suffering, but is using it to lead you to glory, just as Christ's suffering was the pathway that broke open death and led to eternal life. This is what St. Peter means when he says in verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. With that fiery ordeal language, he's picking up the theme he introduced back in chapter 1, that suffering is to be compared with a refiner's fire. Our suffering can be seen as a reliable presence, sign of God's presence in our life because it is one of the ways in this time between the times that God is at work in us to prove us and try us as gold, to make us into the holy people he created us to be. This, too, I think makes sense of the last verse in our reading. Let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust their lives to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. It may seem strange that suddenly St. Peter mentions God as creator here, but it is a reminder that the God who is at work in suffering, the God who is present precisely where he seems most absent, is the same God who made us, and he has not abandoned us. He is still with us. He is faithful. And his work of creation is not undone by the apparently destructive forces of suffering. His work is accomplished and completed even and often especially through suffering. So we can trust him in this. And we should keep on doing the good work he has given us to do, trusting him to give us what we need to do it by the power of his spirit within us. The sequence hymn we sang this morning is one of my favorites. The fourth verse especially speaks to this theme of suffering as God's refining work. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Now, I don't know how any of this is, is landing for you. You may hear, the flame shall not hurt thee, and say, yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're not experiencing the suffering I am. You may hear St. Peter telling you to rejoice in your suffering because it means the Spirit of God is resting on you. And think to yourself, well, that sounds really nice, but I think I'd rather just not be suffering anymore. That's understandable. 
And I can't fault you for that. I don't think God faults you for it either. But I would encourage you to pray for the grace to trust him. To trust that even this suffering could be made to work for your good in his hands. To trust that he is your creator and that he will not let you be destroyed by this. That he will use it to complete his work in you. Life in this time between the times gives us many occasions for discouragement. There are many ways to point to God's absence. But the God who was present in the cloudy emptiness above the ark, the God who manifested his presence in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has not left us comfortless. His spirit is at work in us, especially where it is hardest to sense his presence. So let us look for him there and trust that we may find him. For the Holy Spirit makes even the ascended Christ present to us, not least in the mystery of the Eucharist. So let us continue to cling to him and know that though he is, in a real sense, gone for now, he has not forsaken us. In the words of our sequence hymn's last verse, the soul that to Jesus hath fled for repose I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell shall endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen.